I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Oh! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about that many Batman podcasts. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show! Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I am a podcast. Whoa! Hey! with fans and people, people who Hello again, welcome to Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an audio variety show for your ears based on the legendary 1990s cartoon Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, Hips McManus, Dummy for Hire. Do you need somebody to impersonate a ventriloquist dummy in order to gaslight them back into a life of crime? Then call Hips. He's the McManus for the ultra-specific job. Later in the episode, I'll be talking to comedy writer and all-around nice guy Michael Levine about the new Batman Adventures episode Double Talk. But first, I'll be sitting down with Bob Goodman, who wrote the dang thing. Now, if you're listening to this as the episode drops in real time, then San Diego Comic-Con is a mere sweaty two weeks away, guys. Are you going to be there? I'm going to be there. So if you're going to be there, I want to meet you. Come swing by the Starburns Industries booth at 3917 on the main floor on Saturday the 23rd from 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. I will be there. I'll be there to promote my other podcast, Before You Were Funny, but I'll have stickers for both of these so we can meet each other, we can chat bat, we can awkwardly say hello and goodbye and and discuss all the overpriced merchandise we spent money on, even though we knew we didn't need it all. But hey, it's fun to carry around a themed bag, right? Uh, If you're not going to be there at that point, I'll also be doing the live Tournament of Nerds comedy battle show somewhere off-site, and it's going to be streamed live on Screen Junkies, so I believe everybody who's listening to this can watch it. I think that's at 6.30. I'm not sure, so look it up. It's one of my favorite shows that happens in Los Angeles, and it's happening in San Diego, and it also stresses me out more than anything in the goddamn world because the competition is always fierce to be funny and nerdy and correct. So we'll see what happens. Oh, also, remember, if you love this podcast or just love writing pithy iTunes reviews, you can do just that by subscribing to Batman the Animated Podcast and leaving us a good rating and writing a review. Why am I saying us? Because it's built into my system. It's just me, guys. Uh, Leave me a good review. It helps. All right, it's time for today's episode, Double Talk. After Arnold Wesker, a.k.a. the ventriloquist, is released from Arkham Asylum, supposedly cured, his alternate personality known as the mob boss Scarface surfaces and plunges Wesker back into a life of crime against his will. Original air date, November 22nd, 1997. Written by Bob Goodman, directed by Kurt Gaeta. Music by Shirley Walker with animation by Coco slash Dong Yang. Featuring George Zunza as Ventriloquist and Scarface, boy, does he do an amazing job. Mel Winkler as Lucius Fox, Earl Bowen as Rhino, Townsend Coleman as Muggsy, Patty Maloney as Mrs. Seagar, and Billy Barty as Hips McManus. This is an underrated episode, guys. It's fantastic. For all you new Batman Adventures naysayers, 
Watch this one and tell me they didn't maintain the complex emotional depth and dark tones of the original run. I'd say this one goes even darker than Two-Face Parts 1 and 2. It's pretty fucked up. It's wonderfully directed by Kurt Gaeta and features mystery, horror, and a twist. Not to mention a set-piece battle amongst giant, looming Tim Burton-style Gotham-esque statues. It's absolutely one of my favorite episodes, and it doesn't get enough attention. So, if you haven't watched it in a while, don't remember it, never seen it, watch it before we spoil it on the interviews, because it's really a good one, and, and part of it is the mystery. So, with that, we will move on to today's guest, Bob Goodman. Bob is a fantastic writer who got his first job in L.A. working on the new Batman Adventures writing episodes like this and the fan favorites Growing Pains and Legends of the Dark Knight. He also wrote for Superman, Batman Beyond, The Zeta Project, Justice League, and the DC Films adaptation of The Dark Knight Returns. If that's not enough, the dude also serves in a producer role as well as a writer on Elementary and Warehouse 13. He's a great guy. We chatted a lot about his work, and this is only half of our interview, so if you liked this, stay tuned in the future. coming on the show. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited. You, you've written some of my all-time favorite episodes. Oh, thank you. So it's it's really cool to actually get to chat about them with you. It's cool that you're doing this podcast. You know, we're, uh, we appreciate it. I speak for the group. <laughs> well, I wanted to dig into your career first. Just like, where did you get started? How did you get involved with writing for television and writing in general? And- right. Uh, well, I uh, grew up out in New York. Um, uh, majored in film in college uh, and for a number of years tried to make it as a, an independent feature writer uh, slash director um, kind of flying out to LA a couple times a year and uh, uh, writing independent scripts that uh, tried to raise the money myself and, and got close a couple of times um, but really you know I'm sure little bits of advice will come up now and then as we talk and first bit of advice I'd give to anybody thinking about doing this is that's not a way to do it um, get out to LA uh, and eventually I kind of wised up to that truth myself. Um, and around the time that my wife and I were negotiating terms, um, a friend, a guy named Don Lipper, uh, called us. Uh, didn't know that we were having this conversation. It was just kismet. Uh, at the time, he was the writer's assistant to Alan Burnett and Paul Dini um, through the first batch of Batman the Animated Series. And Don was planning to transfer to another department. Um, this, obviously, you already know the year. It was 1995, or we knew the whereabouts. So it happened, this was right at the beginning of 1995. Uh, and the, the new department that Warner Brothers was creating, that Don was going to get on board with, was called Warner Brothers Online. Because there was this new thing called the Internet, and he was going to go do that. I think I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some people thought it was a fad, might not catch on. Anyway, uh, so Don called and offered to set me up with his job. He was Alan and Paul's assistant. He would vacate that seat and uh, sing my praises and uh, and set me up for the gig, uh, which is how it worked. I flew out here. Um, originally, until like it took a few months for everything to kind of iron out with Don's transfer. Um, so I was kind of a floater um, assistant, script coordinator. Uh, split my time between working for um, Alan and Paul, although Paul was out a lot at the time. Uh, and Tom Ruger, uh, and uh, sort of doing some script services for Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain and Freakazoid, which was just getting started up around that time. Oh, so you got to work um, on many shows. I got to work on everything Warner Animation was doing at that time. Which was such a good time for animation. It was the golden age 
yeah. or the second golden age of Warner Animation. Um, and I, I actually, having just listened to Rich Fogel's podcast, I know that he mentioned that there was this sense of a, um, there were hotspots in animation. That there, you know, for a period of time, Hanna-Barbera was the place where the TV animation to be involved in was. And then, you know, Disney for a while. And it was definitely Warner Brothers for that, for the 90s. Oh, yeah. The Warner Brothers owned animation in the 90s. Everything. Yeah. Um, and eventually job settled into being exclusively Alan and Paul's assistant. Uh, and um, they were generous and uh, open-hearted enough to... Uh, read my spec scripts to watch a student film that I had made in school that uh, had gotten a lot of recognition and awards. And um, what was the student film? So it was um, it was called Touching. Uh, and actually, um, your your listening audience doesn't know, but we have another person sitting here in the room with us. Uh, actually, one of the stars of that short film, uh, a man named Nathan Hull, uh, is sitting here with us. Uh, it uh, it also, I apologize in advance, Nathan. More notably. Uh, starred Lisa Edelstein, uh, who went on to be Cuddy on House hmm. and is now the star of Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. Um, uh, and as I said, film by by other people's assessments came out good, swept the awards at the NYU Film Festival, um, uh, did well financially, which is unusual for a, uh, for a student film. Yeah, that's very rare. Uh, and so... Alan and Paul were willing to check out the film, were willing to read my spec features, um, and only a couple of months into working as their assistant, gave me a freelance on Superman. Basically, I got started with them just as Superman was getting started. Um, so let's say I started actually on a desk outside Alan and Paul's office in March of 95, and probably around summer of that year was when the writing really got started. Uh, on the Superman animated series for a 1996 premiere. What was it like to be around the development of that show, like at its inception? Uh, it was incredibly educational, and I probably didn't appreciate just how much for, for a long time. Um, that goes for really all the stuff that uh, I got exposed to and did there. It was a training ground. Um, the, the, the volume of writing that I got to do, the volume of story breaking that I got to be involved in, and the quality of the stuff uh, was stunning. Uh, the, uh, the Bible that mainly Paul wrote for the Superman animated series, I still see it like floating around every now and then on the net mm-hmm. that people have a PDF of it that they go, this is one of the best Bibles ever, and it really was. What it, made it, it a good Bible? Wow. Uh, so it just kind of hit all the notes. And by that, I mean, um, he, Alan, and Bruce, like I said, Paul was the one mainly at the keyboard, but it was, it was a joint brainchild of the three of them, um, covered what the tone of this show is going to be, what the themes of this show are going to be, um, you know, the, the, the feeling of watching it, what the stories would be like, um, you know, hit each of the characters and gave you not just a bio, but a sense of that character. And really, you know, not just lip service, very often Bibles, because you don't know yet until you hit the ground what this character is going to be. Um, they obviously had the benefit of 40, 50 years at that point of Superman yeah. and the different incarnations and what this incarnation did right and what this incarnation maybe did in a way that they wouldn't want to do so the, it had the Bible the opportunity to compare 
and say, you know, well, we all really love the, the George Reeves Adventures of Superman, which for me, by the way, was like the formative Superman for me. Um, and here's what was great about the Donner movies, but the kind of klutzy Rube G. Lois pushing his glasses up, um, Clark Kent of the Christopher Reeve Superman isn't the way we're going to go on this show. And it had like, mm-hmm. it had all that reference to be able to build off. Um, and also to the advantage, the, you know, the existing villains in the rogues gallery that, that come with, with Superman. Um, and surprise, those guys are good writers. Uh, and so it was well written. It was a, it was enjoyable to read and had good, you know, episode samples. Those probably we didn't stick to as much. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the purpose of a, of a show Bible, or maybe your, your audience doesn't know, uh, is to give as much the buyers of the show as the new writers uh, a, uh, a preview of what it is they're buying. Um, but when the rubber hits the road, it may or may not be adhered to. Uh, it uh, it doesn't necessarily, um, you know, get followed like the Bible in capital letters. Um, but and, and that was true about this one. You know, we didn't go back and go, well, what did we promise? Um, but it did a better than usual job, hmm. like, you know, letting you know this is, you know, this is going to be a brighter colored show than Batman. This is going to be an optimistic show. Superman is about hope and about the the best of human nature. And it, you know, it, 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 it was a guide of what this show was supposed to be that we, we were able to deliver on. Yeah. I mean, I imagine at least it unified kind of the creative voice at first, uh, which should be its purpose. <laughs> Start everybody on the same page. So you can at least like make it feel like the same world. Uh, Not to mention it had great character drawings in it. Yeah. Because again, you've got Bruce. Yeah, what was, um, so what was your background uh, before we even like dive further in like, you know, comic book superheroes? Did you grow up loving them? You mentioned George Reeves Superman. The so the George Reeves Adventures of Superman was definitely the Superman of my childhood. The Adam West Batman was the Batman of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I only had kind of a passing um, intersection with comic books. It's it's kind of a disappointing answer for people I know when when I when I talk about it, but I kind of learned it on the job. Uh, I I got to Alan and Paul's desk by this, you know, wonderful serendipity, and then dove in, um, to my good fortune, largely through their eyes, uh, and and learned about DC Comics, you know, in in the in-depth way that I did on the job. Um, I, you know, I always had a fondness for comic books, um, but it like. I can only think of a few, like, you know, handful of, of moments when I was, you know, sitting there on the bed at night with the flashlight, you know, mm-hmm. reading the comic books as a kid. Um, Mad Magazine was probably the, the, the biggest, you know, at least comics adjacent uh, thing that I was reading in that way. Um, then around when I was, well, let's get the year right. Well, when I was, you know late teens, early 20s, I guess I'd already been 21, it doesn't feel that way, is like when the two big graphic novels came out, Dark Knight mm-hmm. and Watchmen. And that really changed the way my entire generation looked at comic books. Um, that was the moment that they became serious literature for us. 
and people were buzzing about how um, this isn't what you think of when you think of a Batman comic. This yeah, it had a mainstream audience. It felt like it yeah. broke through some sort of barrier. That's exactly right. And, and that's really when I came to respect them in a new way. That's interesting. Uh, do you think that maybe because you didn't have as, I don't know, a kind of fanboyish uh, a background with comics that you were able to approach it from a different perspective? I mean, even coming from the like writing features, feels like the episodes of yours that I've seen and the show in general, they feel, they feel like mini-movies. Uh, well, the, the, the element of them feeling like, like mini-movies uh, was not just me. That was I mean, right. very much the, the goal that Alan and Paul and Bruce set out. Um, in my sort of preparing for this conversation with you and looking back at, at the episodes that I wrote and others, it really was striking to me how... Um, mature the structures that we were playing with were mm-hmm. and how not for kids the structures we were playing with uh, it didn't were, pander it not only didn't pander like yes that's absolutely true yeah um, but structurally didn't pander you there, there are episodes that take a little while for you to figure out you know what you're watching or whose story this is um, or you mentioned you talked with Alan about Perchance to Dream mm-hmm. and Paul's Over the Edge comes to mind, where these are episodes that have a big secret that take a really long time to pay off, and you're jumping around in time, or you're inside a dreamscape uh, in, in the episode, um, and uh, or, or we'll start an episode from a character's point of view who the audience doesn't recognize. And these are things that very kind of modern and mature storytelling is doing even nowadays. You know, a show like Breaking Bad kind of made a signature of opening from some family you don't know or character you don't know and taking, you know, until the commercial break, until you really understand why you're watching this. And we would do stuff like that in a show that was ostensibly, but as far as we were concerned, not really for eight-year-olds. Um, and when, you know, as, as network power um, increased on us there, we were no longer allowed to do stuff like that because the common wisdom, rightly, is your audience isn't going to be able to follow those stories. But we, you know, not to say that we were, um, you know, uh, deliberately or stubbornly leaving our audience, leaving the eight-year-olds behind. But as you said, we weren't, we weren't pandering to them. We, we all loved shows that we had to reach for as kids. We all loved the fact that Looney Tunes had ideas and vocabulary that we didn't know. And we were never afraid of a kid on a living room couch somewhere turning and asking mom and dad what that meant or what's going on. Um, Because we actually thought that that's one of the things television can and should be, is an opportunity for the family to interact, not just plant the kid in front of the set and and leave them there. Um, But to the question you asked... Um, I do think that my coming in with fresh eyes was an asset um, for both myself as a writer and I hope uh, the contribution I was able to make for the show that I was, all of us, uh, Alan Paul, Rich Fogel and myself kind of in particular were big, I'm sorry, um, Stan Berkowitz and uh, we, we were really movie buffs. Bruce Tim also big movie buff, mm-hmm. and a lot of the same movie language that we all could refer to, and and like you said, we, we were talking about these as movies, 
um, and what movies we were referring to. Uh, and the fact that I wasn't just coming to it from, you know, an encyclopedic knowledge of what was done in, you know, detective number XXX that was done in this year and what they, you know, um, the history of this particular villain to the nth degree, but I was instead able to come as a, as a fresh pair of eyes, a fresh audience and a fresh storyteller, I think let me, yes, tell stories that I otherwise might not have and, and kind of, it's overstating my role there, but keep the show honest is kind of what I'd like to, I'd like to get to claim. But the truth is, uh, you know, I should also now, you know, pop a balloon in, in my, the only way I'm talking about this and, and remind that, as I was just saying, I was a first-year staff writer um, in, you know, what, knock on wood, has now become a long television career, but this is the very beginning, and I was very much being taught the ropes on the job. And What a cool thing, though. There are people yeah. who don't get that. <laughs> I'm lucky as all hell. Uh, and um, you weren't beholden to this kind of like comic history at the time. Uh, I think it's so cool that the, the stories didn't handhold people. Uh, structurally, you know, uh, tone, there's a lot of stuff there that's uh, unusual. But I, I, at least like, you know, in, in the limited interaction or like writing I've done for whatever kids television, uh, you don't, or at least like any, any sort of performance where like you don't want to pander. You want people to, you know, you want to have people rise to the occasion, I think. Yeah. Uh, or learn something from it, and they're not going to learn if you're dumbing it down. I think that's the stuff that makes an impression. Yeah. Uh, by the way, for any of us at any age, not just for kids. Yeah, well, yeah, there's dumbing down on every level. <laughs> uh, well, cool. So, back to Superman. What was the first episode that you wrote? So, the, the first episode I did was Feeding Time. Oh, man. That's a great one. Thank you. What a, I mean, like, could be a one-note villain, too. <laughs> and, you know, like, really has, like, a fun humanity to him. And that, by the way, you know, you were talk, we were talking about the, the Bible. Thinking back, you know, and, and not being a guy with a great deal of, of experience with the, um, the Superman rogues gallery that, by the way, also to the general public isn't as well known as the Batman. I didn't gallery. know who the parasite was before I saw this cartoon. Well, so. well, well you and me both. Yeah. <laughs> I, I read the pilot. I saw the character model that Bruce had drawn. I saw the, the blurb that they'd written about parasite. Um, I am a writer who frequently gravitates to sci-fi, um, which obviously is, there's plenty of in Superman. I'd say first and foremost, Superman is a sci-fi property yeah um but but parasite in particular is is one of those characters that you know it's you know the chemicals turned him into a monster mm-hmm. um uh i was i was attracted to the the idea of the character i was attracted to the the power that that he could drain uh superman's power and and you know it seemed like there'd be good character stuff to do there what would happen when superman is weak and this guy has superman's power um it uh so that was my first uh, freelance while still sitting as an assistant at, at Alan's desk uh, or outside of Alan's desk. Um, uh, it went well. Uh, again, I was, you know, a noob and I think I was very ambitious and, and, you know, wrote up a whole idea for a story that I think kind of following the model of something like Feet of Clay that like, oh, you know, we'll spend a whole episode just establishing this character. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we can wait for another episode to like do the next big story. And, and Alan and Paul read it. And as, you know, the way it worked with, you know, not just me as a freelancer, but anybody there is you'd write up your idea. They'd read it. They'd pull you into Alan's office and, and you'd kind of bounce around what they liked and didn't like. And they'd give you some guidance and you'd go and do something else. And they'd give you 
you know, maybe write down two specific beats. And, and this is, you know, now I've, I've learned the way it works with any first year writer on any show that, you know, you have to kind of be fed. This is what we are doing here. Um, and to that one, to that feet of clay like structure that I'd originally pitched them, Paul's first reaction was, it feels like you're doing a two parter here. We really just want to tell this thing in one part. And so we managed to, or they dictated condensing it down. Um, and episode went, uh, went well. And, you know, at the end I was, as they say, good on the page. Um, that led to a second and a third freelance. Uh, I did the, uh, ironically then an actual two-parter, uh, blast from the past, the, oh, uh, the Joxer yeah. Mala two-parter. Uh, and after that third one, uh, they offered me to be a staff writer on the show. Um, how, to, how, what amount of time was that? So pretty much a year from landing in Los Angeles. Um, that's crazy. With, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, I feel like that's unheard of. It is unheard cool. of. It's, it's, it's shockingly fortunate. The, you know, the, no, no two writer's stories are the same, but it's very, very rare that somebody goes from, you know, just showing up to, to being on a writing staff. No, but in contrast, just, you know, again, to not leave the impression that, uh, I'm something special. Um, at the far end of my, my animation career, um, I, I should rephrase that my dedicated, like hopeful time animation work. Um, I decided to make a transition and try and write in primetime one hours and uh, it took many years to take to do that transition, uh, and had several years of of famine after the years of feast, uh, and so it's uh, it it is largely luck. It's not that it was me. I just happened to be the right. You know, I just happened to be in the right place, the right time, at the right desk, and you know, let's say good enough. <laughs> right. Well, you have to have the talent as a baseline, and then hope for the best beyond that. Yeah. Uh, so. Had you watched the uh, the anim- Batman the animated series kind of once you got there, like kind of just like binged it, or were you already watching it? Or uh, yes to both. I'd seen several episodes and and you know was smart enough to recognize this as something different and um, uh, really special uh, before I moved out there. Um, and then upon getting the job, um, Hillary Bader and I together sat in one or the other's office and binged the entire 85 episodes. Mm, what a point. fun way to watch it. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. And yeah, she was a great viewing partner. Um, uh, but so at that point, of course it was, uh, you probably know the numbers better than I do. We did about 65 Superman's somewhere mid through that process. Batman got re-picked up as well. Now on the WB with the, with the revamped art. Um, and for a while we were doing Superman's and Batman's in tandem. Was that um, insane? I mean, was it like just, uh, well, it was uh, a larger production schedule or it was, well, it, the, the individual writing burden on, you know, on a given writer didn't really change. Mm. Probably Alan was the one person in terms of the writing, um, who suddenly had a lot more to do. Um, uh, am I remembering this right? Or did we write all the Superman's and then... And then they they aired together. They aired as the new Batman Superman. Right. Adventures. They were they would alternate a new episode every other week. I I feel like there's a period of time that we were writing both. That we were writing one or the other. Um, but I could be wrong. Maybe we finished all the Supermans and then got to writing the Batmans. Um, I think there was a time, at least from you probably heard more about this than I remember. Yeah, I think it did, there was a crossover period. I mean, there was even a time when I think like what Batman Beyond was being developed at. 
the same time as you know the other shows as they were wrapping up. That's that's for sure. Yeah, um, it all, and I say this you know in 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 a good way. It it all was one long continuity for us. Um, I think so, that's why it's so strong. Like watching any of it, it feels tonally <laughs> right on point and like more satisfying to watch. Like you're seeing these characters grow, even if they are kind of like individual episodes and right. standalone stories. Right. It was it was a not just a, you know that it was one continuous universe that we were putting on the television, but for for us like the the writing group of those shows the. The WB revamped Batman's and Superman and Batman Beyond, um, and then even going into Justice League and Zeta Project and Static Shock and the stuff that kind yeah. of branched out from there, was this one tight knit group of writers. It was Alan and Paul and Stan and Rich and Hillary Bader and myself, and we were the group that did all of those shows as as one writing unit. And the idea that some writers, you know. It's, it's unheard of that a single show's writing staff is that stable, you know, from season to season. Um, but that this group went from writing one show to the next show and without interruption in terms of our employment and with a sense of continuity that we were all in the same universe mm-hmm. and all going out to lunch together every day for all those years. Um, it, it started, I said, to divide when Static and Zeta and Justice League, that's, that's kind of when the group divided and some of us were working on this show and some of us were working on that show and uh, and new people came in and, and we got Dwayne McDuffie and from Florida and um, but but it was a very long period of time of a tightly knit group that we you know we had a shorthand we you know we knew what we were doing you know in terms of speaking with one another and and personally I got an incredible education in how to write. There's no place else in the television business that a guy as new as I was to television would have gotten to write as many episodes of TV as I did in such a short period of time. Man, so what was the... I mean, just to, you know, speaking of like you're going out to lunch every day, I'm trying to think of things that fans would not be able to know unless they heard it from your mouth. Uh, like, what were some of the... Any stories from... Just the making of the show that you remember, like things when you guys were hanging out or when you were writing that you wouldn't hear on a commentary, so to speak. <laughs> wow. I don't know. Were there any bits you guys consistently did? <laughs> sure. Sure, I got one for you. <laughs> then you brought it up that way. Um, we had a running gag that I think actually made it to air at least twice. I'm guessing it was twice. Um, but we joked about it being in so many different episodes. Um, mainly Alan and me, I think, were the, the ones joking about this. Uh, every now and then when you're writing this stuff, you need just like a little bit of dialogue. Uh, you know, we, we talk about dialogue sometimes in couplets, which just means it's like person one speaks, person two speaks. A couplet of dialogue. I mean, you just like, you know, you'll need a moment where, oh, uh, uh, the the two henchmen in the truck are talking for a bit before the batarang comes through the window, or uh, before the the villain, you know, snaps them out of their reverie to get to work, or a couple of pedestrians walking out of a store before the explosion, or and the running gag was one person says to the other. It's called the butter diet. I love it. Or I've lost so much weight. It's the butter diet. And it, it came off of, you know, I think uh, right during that time, 
you know, like I did the Atkins diet and Paul was frequently on one diet or another. And, um, you know, m- many of us, I don't think I'm, you know, telling any secrets, Alan, Paul, myself are, you know, we, we have over the years struggled with our weight and gone up and down. And, and the, the dream was when is somebody going to just realize that, you no, know, tell us when is science going to discover that you can be incredibly healthy and thin, just eating butter. And like I said, we'd, we'd throw it into the scripts every now and then. And I, I think it actually, it actually stuck around twice. That's great. The, uh, so you'll have to now look for that. The, the butter diet references. Well, guys, tweet it. Hashtag the butter diet. Hashtag butter diet. <laughs> uh, so when Batman like was renewed, were there any episode? Were there any villains or you know I don't know stories that you were like I got to do this? Uh, uh, well, uh, I know you want to get to talking about specific episodes, and that's a good transition. Is is yeah, right from the beginning, um, ventriloquist and Scarface. Uh, shall we call that a villain or a pair of villains? Yeah, good um, question. That that I really responded to. What did you respond um, to? They they felt like they were, you know, perhaps not alone in this, but but more than than certainly many villains. Um, they they spoke to the heart of what Batman was to me, um, which was a show about psychology, uh, a show about the demons of the mind. Um, obviously. Bruce slash Batman going through his own, um, you know, Two-Face speaks to it in a way. You know, Batman himself is arguably a dual personality. Um, He's, uh, you know, wrestling with his own inner demons, Um, you know, cut, you know, both into the past. You know, my mentioning that Dark Knight Returns was really the book that hooked me in a way that comics hadn't before and then cut to the future you know that that I had the privilege to to do both the Legends of the Dark Knight episode on New Batman Adventures and the direct video feature adaptations of Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. Part of that is because you know that handling of Batman as you know himself a tortured character, a guy who is dealing with a split personality, who is really arguably also crazy, um, spoke to me. And along with, I guess, Two-Face, um, Scarface and Ventriloquist really hit that on the head. Yeah, I think um, this is a really complex story. Uh, not to mention, you know, uh, the, the character study is complex and the, the way that the story unfolds is complex in a, in a great way. Like, it's such a good mystery. Because uh, I feel like what you did really well is we're kind of along for the ride from the, you know, Wesker's point of view. Uh, you don't know if you're going crazy with him. Uh, there's like a bit of horror to it. Well, that's yeah. I was talking earlier about the fact that we would we would play with structure. We would open stories in ways that would leave you on unsure footing. You know where you were, what the story you were watching was for a while. And this one opens in a dream sequence in Wesker's own nightmare, um, and it's very symbolic and surreal. And I remember uh, Kurt Gaeta, the director, and me talking about the uh, the Hitchcock movie Spellbound mm. and the Dolly-esque dream sequences in that. 
feel like um, Hitchcock comes up a lot in these episodes, uh, visual as visual motifs. Uh, has that come up in other podcasts? Other, and just as a kid, I was a big fan of Hitchcock, so I was watching those movies at the same time as I was digesting like these episodes. So like, yeah. would see the similarities or think well, I saw them, and then later find out yes, that was deliberate. You're absolutely right, and it's very uh, insightful to notice that. It's uh, again, you know, a lot of a lot of the way we spoke there, both the writers speaking amongst ourselves and and when we would talk with the artists, um, we would speak about classic movies and in particular Hitchcock. Um, and certainly when, you know, working on Batman, um, Hitchcock was a, a guiding light to me in terms of the visuals, in terms of imagery, in terms of how to tell a story visually. Kind of the, the you know, big, you know, job one when you're working in animation as, or when you're writing animation as compared to writing live action is making sure that even on the page, you're telling a clear visual story and there is no better education for how to tell a story Hmm. clearly and visually, how to get, you know, a single clear idea out in this one shot than, than studying Hitchcock. Yeah. Um, and so that came up a lot for me, you know, over and over again, working on, on these episodes. Um, another, you know, reason I was, I was drawn to do this particular character to do Scarface and Ventriloquist was that Read My Lips was such a a favorite episode of mine. Um, and you were just mentioning the, uh, you know, sort of that marriage of individual standalone episodes with a... A continuity with a universe, yeah. Um, and I, I, I loved that about the show. I think that's a great thing that, like, you look at to this day. You know, great television does that. You know that they, you know, manage to tell closed mysteries, standalone stories. But over the years and over the library that you build of history with your characters. You get to remember what came before and acknowledge it, and just keep making your characters richer and richer. Um, so, the the idea at the like at the premise at the one sentence logline level came from Paul um, that um, Wesker, uh, after spending some time in Arkham, is cured, um, and his old crew gaslight him to get the boss to come back out. Um, started with Paul, um, but I, you know, hungrily, you know, said, I'll, I'll carry that ball, boss. Uh, and then from there, um, Alan and I, and on occasion, Alan and Paul and I would, would get together in Alan's office and, and bounce it around and, um, really, you know, fill out the, the holes in that. I remember that the idea for that dream sequence um, was something I came up with very late in the process. Hmm. The the story, it was a tough one to break and I think Kate went through like a few different story breaks and iterations and I think I had to, you know, like do the outline differently, a couple of different ways and, you know, that the, like a lot of these and I'm sure this was true in Perchance to Dream and, and you know, a lot of them it was um, the the trick was figuring out how to get into the story and how to tell the story and how to introduce the players in a way that doesn't get you too far ahead of the story, that you're not lost. That uh, um, And so like one of the things we were wrestling with for a long time is, okay, well, how do we introduce 
Muggsy and Rhino, the the two henchmen and their problem and what they want and how do they intersect with with uh, ventriloquist and when do they and and so the the dream sequence as a device as a solution to some of that was something that I didn't come up with until like you know we were very far down the road and other stuff. Well, it felt like it harkened back to some of the first episodes of the original run of the animated series too. Uh, it felt like the Two Face you know opening uh, in a good way because uh, I feel like some of these episodes, some of the later Batman episodes, do feel like broader scope, bigger adventures, uh, and tonally you know a little different, but they're just they're their own animal. Uh, and this these felt like at least the you know, this and Growing Pains, feel they feel like smaller stories uh, and more like kind of first and second season episodes, which I liked, that were like focusing just on these characters. But we do get to dive into like, you know, the goons <laughs> and bring them back. That was so satisfying in like a small way. Like this world is cohesive and, and we will revisit these guys. Right. I'm sure you're right that the, the earlier episodes were more like the, the earlier batch um, and we you know, maybe figured out what we, you know, had permission, gave ourselves permission to do differently and, you know, shed the old skin as we went. And, you know, when, when we started up the, the, the WB batch, uh, our only guide was the episodes that, uh, that they, I wasn't a part of it then, had done in the first 85. And I guess if you were binge watching them right beforehand. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was pitching into. That was the, that, that was the reference. I mean, it's uh, TV shows are always an evolving thing, and the 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 hardest time to be on any show is that first season when nobody knows what it is, including the creator and showrunner, and you're all figuring it out together, and kind of everything is on the table and you no know, up for grabs, and um, it the the more the more of the show you have to refer to, in one way the easier it gets in the sense that you know this animal now. You have some instincts into, well, what's going to work on the show? What isn't? Yeah, we tried that. Here's why it didn't work. We already did that one in season two. Um, uh, it gets harder, too, because the more of them you've done, the harder it becomes to come up with something new to yeah, do. I already did it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we definitely hit that. I mean, by the time, so what do we have? 109 Batmans, and I yeah. think it was 69 Supermans, uh, 65 Supermans. And I'm going to make, was it 54 Batman Beyonds? Yeah, something around there. That, you know, it became, incre- you know, we're, it's a lot of episodes that, and, and because we were thinking of that as, as a continuity, we weren't going to do something in this show that we'd already done on that show. So it really counted as, you know, north of 200 episodes that we had to do something different than and hopefully beat uh, as we went along. Um, so there's there's a, one way that it gets easier and one way that the, the challenge is like the bar keeps getting raised. Were there any particular story challenges or, or just things that like maybe didn't make the cut of the episode uh, that you were, you know, like original drafts or version? I know it's been a while, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, that got reshaped or, or, or you know, posed. Well, it's funny as the um, one of the things that the powers that be and by that primarily I mean the network um, always wanted us to do in these days uh, was you know keep what they called kid entries or kid entry points to the show Mm -hmm. Um, basically that meant 
you know, use use Batgirl and use Robin and use Nightwing as much as possible. Kind of keep the ensemble in as many episodes as possible. And I don't know if there was ever like a specific dictate of this character has to be in this number of episodes a year and this has to be in this number. Um, there was also, uh, I'll, I'll put these things in part and parcel, but then I'll like kind of separate out some of the upshot of them. Um, uh, pressures from the toy companies. Um, uh, if I'm if I'm remembering this right, I think at this point Hasbro was making the mm-hmm. the toys, and later that became Mattel. I think. Don't, yep, you yeah. are correct. Okay. <laughs> um, and you know they would want to make sure that whatever toys they wanted to sell were featured in the show. So you know, make sure you get the Batwing and the Batboat uh, in enough what about episodes. The middle-aged and... man with the ventriloquist dummy for the kids. <laughs> That was I wanted that toy. <laughs> I don't know. Was was there a ventriloquist? They eventually the made yeah. him, but they you well, know, what really released sold, it in a four pack, so they had three other you know repainted figures. What what really sold were Batman in as many different colored gadgety yeah. you know that's that's why there were you know hundred different Aqua Battles Batman and and you know uh, whatever net shooting flying Batman and you know whatever because because that's what sold was another another Batman figure. Anyway, so we'd have these, you know, um, these mandates or these um, pressures, probably a better way of putting it, to, you know, make sure that these characters are in a lot of episodes, make sure that these number of toys are in a lot of episodes. Um, and so we'd start well-intentioned. And I know it was definitely true in Growing Pains. Uh, I'm sorry, in, uh, uh, in Double, Double Talk. Talk. Uh, I think it was true in Growing Pains too, but, but uh, in Double Talk that... Batgirl had a big part in the in the episode for a while, and is she in the episode at all at the end? I don't even think so. No, I mean I think um, there are so many characters to juggle that yeah, I can't imagine how you could fit another one in. And, there. and you're absolutely right. And eventually we couldn't. And eventually you you know you do what the story needs. You do what's best for the story. You you try, and by the end of the season, you make sure you've done enough to keep the people you know paying your electric bill happy, or else they turn your lights off. Um, uh, but I know that Batgirl was in the story a lot for a while, and in this particular case, the 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 reason that uh, she didn't stay in the episode um, uh, was uh, we had had this, you know, um, unflattering depiction of a little person in in the show, uh, uh, Hips McManus, who mm-hmm. was played by Billy Barty, right? Um, and the network had requested that we balance that um, with a good portrayal of a little person um and so if you remember the woman who ran the halfway house yeah in double talk um i hope i'm right about this was played by zelda rubenstein you know um, i'm not sure um and she's got a zelda rubenstein sound to her yeah her, I, I, I think it was her um and so we needed to add this other character and it was a role structurally that was previously going to be filled by Barbara slash Batgirl. Um, that since the halfway house was part of the the Wayne conglomerate, that it was Wayne Manor's halfway house, that we were going to have Barbara being the one checking in on him and helping him. And, and she had to, you know, for reasons of, you know, real estate in the story, uh, drop away to uh, to meet that condition. The fun thing, and I know this is a digression, but but you'll enjoy it, that came up with the toys um, uh, it was much more of a, of a headache on Superman um, because Hasbro had had their experience of what sold Batman toys, uh, which is Batman in this suit and Batman with this, this gadget and Batman with this piece of equipment. Um, and they wanted to do the same thing with Superman. 
Um, and Superman just doesn't need all that gadgetry. No, I remember um, I was somebody who bought the toys yeah. <laughs> when they were out. And I remember my uncle at the time was like, why is he in a space suit? Why, is why, he a space why suit? does he need a deep dive suit? Why is he in a dive suit? I was suit? like, why I does he have a car? give him a reason, yeah. but I was so upset and defensive. Well, good. Thank you for... Because he, he needs them. Thank you for defending it. Well, the reason is because you would buy six of them instead of buying one of them. Yeah, right. Um, and so, you know, that's going back to feeding time, why we introduced the anti-kryptonite suit. Right. Um, because that's one of the few things that actually makes sense that Superman might need is something to protect him from, from kryptonite. Um... And what we did as writers to subvert this thing that was foisted upon us, uh, and if you go back and watch those episodes, is every time we put Superman in one of those suits, we would make sure to destroy the suit and rip it off him and show that he could overcome the obstacle even without the suit. So he'd be in the deep dive suit and it would you know, get caught on something and tear off him and he'd have to hold his breath for the time. Or the Lobo episode, I think, right. is the first one to introduce the, uh, the space suit. Lobo you know, rips the helmet right off him and, and he has to fight without it. I mean, that said, it's also fun to see those suits. <laughs> no, I'm glad you like them. <laughs> yeah. It, so with uh, Ventriloquist, with, with Double Talk, were there any... By the time it kind of like wraps up, we find out it's not, you know, this kind of straight up horror show. Uh, and, and I do like that uh, this is one of the few happy endings for a Batman rogue. We don't see him again, I believe. Uh, maybe Oof. he shows up in Justice League, at, like in the background of a shot or something. But I think, I think, you know, ostensibly, Wesker is healed. <laughs> I, 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 I don't remember. I'll believe you. I mean, at the end of the episode, at the very least, it is a, it is happy, a happy ending, we, which is a rare thing for any Batman episode. Usually it's just kind of like, at, at best, you're accepting fate and there's somebody rocking back and forth in like a cell in Arkham. Right, yeah. So uh, the, the classic ending to one of those episodes is the, the villain, whoever it is, goes back to Arkham and we punctuate it with that sort of classic blob-like question mark of when will they get out and do their, their thing again. Right. Um, yeah, this one, um, Wesker with Batman's help, overcomes his demons. I do remember Barbara is in the episode. Batgirl is, is she's in the third act of it at yes. least. Yes. That she's, you know, we use her in that whole set piece and the, the gag with her being trapped in the vault with Bruce who can get out of the vault if only he could work the voice activation system Which on the outside of the vault. Which is just a fun set yeah. piece. <laughs> Constructing and then overcoming those challenges was, you know, obviously a big fun part of, of doing those shows. Oh, yeah. But, but to that ending, a... a um, uh, a really fun thing to do um, when you could on on the shows in general uh, uh, was kill a character. <laughs> we very rarely got to do that. And obviously the time you can do it is when the character you're, quote, killing, I'm making air quotes here for the audience, um, uh, when the character you're killing isn't human. Um, so you can blow Brainiac uh, up because he's just a robot. And by the way, is one of those that you question mark and bring him back later. Um Scarface, if you go back and look at the, I'm guessing the entire Every episode. body of, of Scarface episodes, we got to destroy this wooden ventriloquist dummy a different fun way every time. And part of the, like, you know, part of the reward for writing a Scarface episode was coming up with, well, how are we going to kill him now? Um, he really and, gets it handed to him in this one. <laughs> and the, the, the falling onto the rooftop 
air conditioning unit and having like some last line of dialogue when you think he's like not really going to fall through and then falls through and gets eaten up by those fan blades was satisfying. Oh yeah. It's fun to, and I mean that as a writer, it was satisfying to write. Um, the, the, uh, I, I, I kind of personally gravitated just for fun toward finding characters that, you know, in some way or another, I would get to kill or seemingly kill at, at the end of an episode. At the very least, two other episodes you've done, I can think of. <laughs> well, there's, there's Annie in, uh, in Growing Pains. Yep. And then, um, I mean, did you, you wrote Nighttime as well? Uh, I wrote Nighttime. Um, Brainiac? <laughs> yeah, so like I said, Brainiac is one you get to, you get to destroy. Um, I wrote all three of the Bizarro episodes. Um, and, you know, we, we did reveal later that he was alive and brought him back. But uh, in Identity Crisis, we, we blow him up. Yeah. And he's, uh, along with, you know, whatever, 20 other, you know, would-be Bizarros in those clone tanks in that lab. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was, that was no accident that, that I, you know, I looked for opportunities to do that. Well, cool. Thank you so much for talking about this with me. No, my pleasure. Thank you. And we'll talk again soon. I'm so excited. What about Bob? Bob was great. What a great interview. Now, moving on to today's fan, Michael Levine. Michael is a contributor to The Devastator and The Onion, both funny publications. Check out his new books, All the Feelings, as well as Oh, the Flesh You Will Eat. They're available on Amazon or wherever books are sold if they happen to sell them at your place. Why not just go on Amazon? That'll probably be easier if you don't live in Los Angeles. I'm also a big fan of his comic, By Mike and Evan, which you can find at bymikeandevan.tumblr.com. Follow him at B-I-Z Michael. This is a fun one, you guys. I'm sitting down with Mike Levine. How are you? I am fantastic. Uh, it's great to have you on the pod. Yeah, it's great to be here. We just met each other in person. This is like the first the first real-life IRL meeting. Yeah. Dare I say it's going great. Yeah, honestly, we've just hung out for the last like 15 minutes. Right. Should we should have recorded it. We've ex- I've expressed uh, admiration for all your tchotchkes, mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, this male bonding is going great. Yeah, yeah. we're doing it. Hey, maybe real-life friends after this? Oh, my God. Oh, I can only hope. Uh, so, why don't we just dig into the Batman stuff? Yeah. You know, that's what the podcast is about. Sure. Uh, so, what was your experience with the animated series? Did you watch it as a kid yeah I, I remember watching it as a kid and thinking like maybe I'm not mature enough for this yet <laughs> like it was so you were self-aware about that ahead of time yeah I think because I even watching it like the tone is very arid and noiry and like those are things that I love now um but it wasn't like the Nickelodeon things the wacky things mm-hmm. that were sort of uh catching my attention but I like in the same way that the X-Men cartoon is most people my age is like X-Men, like this is kind of my Batman. Like this is the voice that I hear. This is the tone. And uh, one thing I loved just getting into the episode was that it was, this is the Batman that's very much on patrol. Like this is the Batman that's there every night, like busting up criminals. Some go to rehab, some come out like not the Christopher Nolan Batman who when his girlfriend dies, he retires (laughs) like that. All right, I'm out. (laughs) Yeah, I was like profoundly not okay with that. I love the Batman that's in it and doing it. Uh, 
Just like same with that new Spider-Man game where it's like we're dealing with Spider-Man on year three when he's very good at things. What? Wait, what's the new Spider-Man game? Uh, it was just announced at the last big video game thing, but it's it very much made a big deal about being the expert Spider-Man. Did he have a weird costume? Was that like a yeah, he had like a weird sort of white on it or something like okay, that? Okay, I but saw yeah. some pictures but didn't click on articles. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, we want to see these heroes like in their element. Yeah. Like everyone's sick of origins and stuff. So well, yeah, because every single superhero a movie is like here we go you right. know it already but uh, this is the third iteration <laughs> right and I like I don't like Batgirl popped up I was very happy to see her like it but it wasn't a big deal I don't need to explain it like oh you know I gotta go keep this a secret from my dad Commissioner Gordon <laughs> like right. she was just there and quipping and part of the family so that's fun yeah I feel like this iteration of Batman like once they went to this this is like technically like the fourth season mm-hmm. although we kind of talked about this off mic briefly, but it never felt like we were watching seasons as a kid. No, that's not how you thought about it. You were lucky to get your uh, UPN two Simpsons episodes at six and six thirty, and yeah. you took what you got. You're, You're like whenever, have an opinion. When, whatever it is, right? Yeah, I'm exactly. yeah, please. Uh, I kind of miss those days, right? Like the fact that we can watch anything we want, yeah. anytime we want. There's something about being forced to watch. I guess this is what people who like actually listen to records mm-hmm. uh, or even cassettes. Right. You know, growing up with cassettes, like you would have to listen through something to get to it. Yeah. Versus now it's just like, I want to watch this one. Right. Uh, you would be exposed to the episodes that either sucked but they kept re-airing or like, you wouldn't have watched, but were great. Absolutely. And there was, I, I always remember the crushing summer betrayal of realizing, like, why don't they have new shows in the summer now that I have time? <laughs> like, like now that I'm not in when school. When I'm doing kid right. work. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, it was a crapshoot. And now, if anything, we have too much power. <laughs> yeah. Uh, absolute TV power corrupts. Yeah. TV, absolutely. <laughs> pretty much, no, you got it. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty, yeah, that's yeah. A beautiful verbiage. Right, you made it all the way through that sentence. Uh, neither of us were sure it was going to make sense, but we did it. <laughs> and that's why this friendship is going really well it's so fantastic. far. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I, we, we derailed already. I, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, you like this version of Batman. Yeah, um, he's very like well-intentioned and a, a little bit well-humored and gentle, Um like, I think there's, like, a viral critique of Batman where it's like, oh, he's a billionaire who, like, beats up mentally ill people. And because I care a lot about mental illness, and it comes up a lot in this episode, like, it's not great with certain concepts of mental illness. Uh, but to me, Batman does really care. And he does really care about the rehab end and the little guy and giving people extra chances. I think um, that's what I love about this version of Batman, and I don't know if I've seen it anywhere else. Yeah. He's, uh, he's introduced as a guardian angel. Like, he's outside the window. Like, that's so beautiful. Yeah. And you could sock as many people in the mug as you want. <laughs> right. Like, when he first beats up, you know, the ventriloquist or, you know, like mm. Wesker's, you know, thugs. Yeah. When they first meet him, he's like, Wesker's off limits. <laughs> and, you know, he's still beating the crap out of people. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it, it was, there's something sweet about the fact that this Batman is, like, using his time to mm-hmm. not just assume that they're lost causes, but is trying to help them rehabilitate. Like, there are other episodes where he gives other he gives them jobs. Right, yeah. There's, um, I'm a huge, huge fan of the gigantic Grant Morrison run. And, like, there's one girl he pulls off the street and gives her a job. And mm. she ends up kind of saving the world in this climactic event. And that's so key to me, that he would want to follow someone through. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, believing in somebody is enough of a heroic thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's like the super. That's a Superman thing too. They're supposed to empower us, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. When people shit on Superman, uh, not that I, you know, I still am like a Batman before Superman just Mm. because of the cool factor. Yeah. But uh, really great Superman stories, I think, have such a wonderful heart to them uh, like you know like it's one of those like, inspire you to be a better person kind of thing like Superman on the ledge yeah with that girl okay it was, we're already here I'm already half crying right? uh, yeah no t- <laughs> that that page uh, has brought me back from the brink a few times uh, mm-hmm. and it's all it's all in that line of Superman just saying you're stronger than uh. you think you are which is which is so okay <laughs> I'm a very I'm a very feelings uh, type guy but like that that page is on all the screensavers. Like, it comes up. I send it to people on Twitter. Like, mm-hmm. it's the most beautiful encapsulation of that. Uh, but we're but we're in Gotham now. It's dark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's blimps. It's mostly hopeless. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, like like some some little bit of hope. There's, there's always the hope that uh, by the end of the episode, you will be hanging out with the uh, little person who lives across the hallway. Like, well, I think this is a rare Batman episode where... The villain isn't, the villain in quotation marks, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, villain isn't uh, left to suffer and, you know, like, you know, in Arkham, in a straitjacket, muttering right. to themselves, repeating the creepy thing over and over. Right. Uh, he does help him, and he, he doesn't go back to being Scarface ever again in this series. Yeah. And, oh, ever? No. Nope. Oh, wow. It's kind of so wonderful. Nice. Yeah, because I, I looked up just the comics version. I think there's like three um, ventriloquist type people now. Right. Um, but yeah, that's that's really nice to know. I didn't know about the continuity through and through. I know like the basics of what's going on. This was the, the last one that they did with the ventriloquist, and I thought that it was a particular. You know, like there's something great about watching these villains also perpetually fuck up because yeah. we as humans, it's hard to escape and right. break patterns. Right. Well, also, I mean, the crazy thing about the the feeling of the episode too is that Batman's someone who can by default never fully process Mm -hmm. like he needs that grief and rage in him but for him to usher other people through processing these things is is like really profound it's weirdly Uh, mature Uh, for a guy who can't deal with his own problems he's like found his own way to be productive even if it's not the best way to be a human. Right, and he's also like not the cliche in this animated version of like the constantly traumatized Batman. Yes. He's he's mature and competent. Um, he's he's dad sort of like yeah. in that in that the Batman and Robin dynamic is that as like little kids we know that we might be cool enough to go on patrol with Batman. Like we're not Batman, but we can be Robin like. Yeah. So yeah. I, I love this. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, like, so you, you were familiar with, like, the ventriloquist as a villain beforehand. Yes. Uh, and, so, and familiar with the many different Scar... I'm a fan of all the Scarfaces. All the Scarfaces. I'm a fan of Scarface the movie. I'm a fan <laughs> of uh, Scarface the rapper, uh, who is incredible. And so I was just happy. Yeah, this is as good a Scarface as I think. Stay at home, Scarface. Shout out to... Please, yes. Yes. <laughs> no, I was, about, I was like trying to veer into a plug, but uh, my man Kenny has a book called uh, Stay at Home, Scarface. Check and it it's out. the funniest, most amazing coloring and activity book for single dads there is. <laughs> uh, and it's also the best of other types of books that it doesn't even belong to. It's the best ornithology book. Uh, <laughs> Second type of book. Yeah. <laughs> and we've done it. We plugged somebody who didn't ask us to plug them. Hooray. Um, 
Yeah, I think, well, you, you kind of touched upon, like, the way it handles mental illness. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, it, it is a product of its time, but I do think it does, like, a pretty decent job of, lo- at least not demonizing, you know, uh, Wesker. Right. Well, I like... Yeah, because I think Batman uh, takes root in a lot of uh, people's minds because it deals with these psychological things, even though it doesn't do it well Mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, Like, for example, when you have disassociative personality disorder, your other personalities don't often vow revenge as they're being, like, fed into a fan. Right. And, like, shredded apart. But uh, We have heightened stakes and heightened uh, dramatization. And I was, like, okay and safe in this universe, but what I really don't appreciate is fucking uh, Jared Leto uh, diving into the mental illness of the Joker in a real way, which to me is profoundly disrespectful to the craft of acting and the last person who played that part. Because Everything about it is insane. No, I'm not, but it's not not in a fun way, not in no. a cool way. Because to also, me, also it's shitty to actors that you're dealing. Like it's like, don't come on, man, don't treat other people like that on set. No, and, and not even that. Like the, the craft of acting itself, where to me it would have been the coolest thing if he just showed up. Nice and normal in a tuxedo for inter- tuxedo. I don't know why. But you know, a normal he, yeah. tuxedo. Right, a nice, in a nice normal tuxedo for interviews and put on the craziest, most bonkers performance and just sat there calm. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm an actor. I jumped into that role and I didn't need to take it home with me. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, it, it just didn't seem necessary. Yeah, no. <laughs> it feels no. like a publicity stunt that the people who were in on it were also not on board with. No, not at all. And that's that's very important and terrible. But, uh, oh, um, yeah, like, multiple personalities don't work nearly the way anyone ever thinks they do. But in terms of the symbolism and, like, the themes of this episode, it worked. Well, yeah, like, yeah. it opens with this... I think it's really well-directed in mm-hmm. particular. Uh, it's really well-written. Bob Goodman, the, the writer for this episode, mm-hmm. he kind of wrote some of the best, like, emotionally resonant episodes of this fourth season he kind of came in at this point in the game Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe because I I sat down with him but I'm trying to remember it was a little while ago he he was kind of an assistant to the other guys to Alan Burnett like Mm -hmm. the story editor in the original run towards Mm -hmm. the tail end and Mm -hmm. then got to like he basically almost immediately got to write for the show and so he I feel like more than other writers on this iteration really piggybacked off of his favorite like tragic villains yeah like he did a really great Clayface episode nice uh, that was really sad and good um, but I feel like it really humanized him I mean it starts with this like flashback mm-hmm. this, or not flashback this horrible nightmare <laughs> yeah yeah we're very much in dreamscape like it's yeah it's amazing this weird flute music is always playing is like a cue whenever we come back to it yeah and it was yeah, it was very much like a haunted by the mistakes of the past thing, too. It wasn't... Because sometimes when you see um, Scarface, it's about like, oh, is it this nebbishy guy? Like, is he really this monster on the inside or is it something external? Um, but this time it was... <clears throat> excuse me. So it was about like, they keep bringing me back. Yeah. <laughs> like, the henchmen are lost without him. Oh, it was so sad. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it really it felt like kind of he was dealing with some sort of like PTSD style triggers. Absolutely. Like him watching Batman beat the crap out of these thugs and the sh- that shot of like them in the foreground and Wesker cowering is like right. the shadows are kind of... Uh, yeah, and small things looming large and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's enough to forgive the... Uh, 
oh, well, a little person can obviously play a dummy that's much smaller than him. <laughs> like that, like, like, I just had to let that go and not be too bothered by it. Hired um, to do it. <laughs> yeah, what was, he, I, I think I wrote down his name. Hips McManus. <laughs> Love that. That's like such a wonderful noirish name. Right. And what's um, what's Batman's alter ego? Uh, Matches Malone. Matches Malone. Oh my God, I love me some Matches Malone. Uh, hey, guys, you think that Matches might not be a real person? <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, he has a suspicious name, just right. saying. No, but he keeps lighting those matches. Uh, <laughs> so okay, that. I guess it's his thing. And in Gotham, you name yourself after your thing. Yeah, you, but you get one thing. But it's a birth certificate thing. Like, that's his given name. <laughs> lit his birth certificate on fire. Yeah. That's why they call it Matches Malone. It all holds together. Yeah, as a baby, he came yeah. out the womb with a match. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that, okay, that that just got gross in my mind, but I don't need to, we don't need to illustrate it any yeah, further. Yeah, get in there? Well... well yeah, no, exactly, yeah, and when was it struck is what I was thinking oh, of. Oh, God, but this what was, was it struck right, Yes, this might not be that kind of podcast, and oh, I'm yeah. happy. Uh, <laughs> welcome back to Placenta Talk, uh, where we're talking about all the things that can right. be struck against a placenta. Yes, and we'll be changing our name to Placenta Talk. Uh, <laughs> yeah. for <laughs> you think that Placenta Talk, the other mug in our gang? Uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've turned this podcast horrible. Uh, I don't know. I think I've been leaning into okay. it hard. Okay, great. No, yes. It's, it's a journey we're going on together. Um so yeah, Hips McManus. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I don't have anything to say about him. I just love a Hips McManus. Like it's like just the right level of of pulpy, right? But uh, they still have like grounded, like like the like. And it would have been too on the nose to like call him tiny or short stuff. It's like he has like full sensual hips, and like that's what his friends first notice <laughs> right, about it's him. His sensual, right? Hips. Yeah, absolutely sensual hips. Yes. Uh, yeah, his name is uh, Jeffrey Gorstein, mm, <laughs> but yeah. uh, McManus is the bar that he likes. He likes the New York right. bar, McManus. <laughs> He's a big UCB. Uh, yeah, Chelsea absolutely. Fan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so. We start with this uh, flashback that cre- very it's a very horror centric episode. Feels yeah. like the imagery is very horrific. Uh, is that like kind of like swing set that's just yeah. creepily swinging on its own? He's running on this glowy yellow brick road. Uh, there's a trunk. Scarface yeah. pops out. Yeah. Wakes up. No, I'm just scared now. You know, yeah. you're right. That is scary. I'm leading you, I'm <laughs> yeah, leading yeah. you down this horrible, scary path. Uh, <laughs> what horrible thing am I like? I gonna get led back to with this with these imagery? And he's being rehabilitated. That's, yeah. Uh, that's yeah, and it's very nice. Like it's, I like that. I don't know. I like that Arkham is trying or giving giving him a chance. It doesn't have. There's no irony to it. There's no like, well, you're gonna come back, and I'm so. It makes me so happy to find out that he doesn't come back. Right. There's not. It's not always a revolving door, which is usually how it's kind of portrayed in the series. Right. It's like when you got a problem, mm. you can't escape it. Yeah. Well, and like what. What villains like in the comics have been successfully rehabilitated? Because there's no like every so often I think Clayface like became good for a while, um, but yeah, that's I don't know when that happens. I don't know either. I think it's really interesting when you know, the closest thing they did with this series I feel like was the Clock King. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he you know he was very much like OCD was his. His kind of uh, compulsion. Wait, oh, okay, but Clock King and Calendar Man? Uh, like, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> hey, like, they all can. There's a crossover. No, no, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they brought him back in the Justice League show. It's mm-hmm. like a, an episode where like the government hired a bunch of 
basically like Suicide Squad mm. style. Yeah. Uh, they did their own Suicide Squad where they the government hired a bunch of villains to break into the Justice League watchtower to steal stuff. Oh, and wow. the Clock King was like the t- it was like kind of like an Ocean's Eleven style. Right. Like, uh, He's the this guy. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty fun, uh-huh. and he was like the timing guy, like back at the. Awesome. I guess he's still kind of a villain because the Justice League is right. Over, yeah, and they're also doing it out of selfishness to get like you know time knocked off their right. Oh, okay, time in prison. Yeah, no, I love all these implications. <laughs> anyway, Clock King came back. Uh-huh. Ooh, it was fun. Yeah. What's he look like? Uh, he basically the same, just doesn't have little uh, <laughs> clock hands on his glasses. This okay, time he's just oh. wearing a suit. All right, nice. Anyway, we've uh, I've derailed you to talk clock. No, yeah. Well, I I also I think one one thing I saw in my notes that I appreciated in terms of this type of Batman is just Gatling guns galore. Like there is no this episode would have gone entirely differently if not for a Gatling gun that came in use five times, and that's that's what we want. Like you can you can fire a bomb through an air vent into a place where it's safe with a Gatling gun. Who says you can't? And like. Yeah, the little clever Batman, the MacGyver Batman. Oh, yeah, that's fun to watch. Yeah, that's what I love. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, like, we have clever Batman, we have empathetic Batman. Yeah. And then we just have brute... Like, the the doesn't have to look, like, throws up his hand and, like, punches... Lovely, yeah. The choreography of that, I mean, truly, like, it was really well animated in time. Yeah. Sometimes it does not work out as well. And it's the precise ninja Batman who's, like, not doing any more than he has to Mm -hmm. to knock everyone out, uh, which I absolutely love in uh, the Arkham Batman games how it's all about just like knocking people out mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't die it's just like unconsciousness bats fly out of them and yeah. you also really get a sense of like oh if I get shot like one and a half times I'm dead like mm-hmm. it gives you a sense of that vulnerability that's very real um, but yeah some good sock ups but mostly like a, a psychological, like, liberating sort of episode. Yeah, like, I mean, the act break, I think of act one, is Wesker crying on the floor yeah. after shattering a glass of milk mm-hmm. and sweating. As, like, it kind of, like, does an iris in, yeah. but it's like a wavy kind of dream sequence. It's, like, yeah. really, really, it's dark. It, it reminded me of, like, the Two-Face episode from, like, the very beginning of the series. Oh, it's yeah. like a two-parter where they did the origin. Mm-hmm. And it was just, like, mostly nightmares for a guy dealing with anger management. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's, like, tragic things happen to the villains, too. And a lot of them are sort of parallel with things that have happened to Batman. So it was, like, I... Yeah, I like the world. It's... I, I wouldn't like this if it was made today, but I very much love it for where it is. Like, yeah. Yeah, we should be a little more conscientious about these things but I, that's that's nitpicking when it's something of the time yeah I mean him uh, well it, it reminded me thematically at least of like he it's like those people who are trying to rope you back into your bad habits yeah like the wrong crowd yeah Oh, and those dumb villains who were like, well, the only smart guy we knew is a personality of this guy. <laughs> like that's these are the these are the dumbest goons and oh. mooks. Yeah, they're cowardly and they're superstitious. They're horrible. Uh, superstitious cowardly lot. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, uh, I did like you know continuity wise uh, for nerds. It is, they're the same voices, same goons as the previous Scarface episodes. Like, yes. the, the attention to detail of, like, bringing back the goons right. for these, you know, like, making them a, a pivotal part of the episode. Yeah. Because I feel like what makes the show feel very timeless, or at least, like, when you watch it, you don't 
continuity is never a problem. You can dive in. Yeah. But if you are watching, you're like, hey, okay. Yeah. These side characters are important too. Well, you you love the life of someone, and I think. Uh, the Azarello Joker story really got into this in a serious way, but like the Gotham thugs were like, ugh, like, guess I gotta be a clown this week. <laughs> like, they're very much in with like, uh, I gotta be like Humpty Dumpty themed, <laughs> sure. Like, they're not, the things didn't happen to them. They're not coming up with their own themes. No. So, as to whether they're, they're choosing by fashion or like, who they think is the least unstable, like, yeah. <laughs> to me, it's like uh, like being a sketch comedian and having right. to bring all your own stupid props. Oh, absolutely, uh, It's yeah. like, all right, well, uh, you know, I have to be in this sketch, and I guess I have to dress up as Dr. Fartstein. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, okay, I'll grab Just all Just going these. through your trunk, and it's like a, a, a smock and, like, a wig <laughs> and, like, a bowler hat and shit like that. Yeah. It's a hard-knock life for these sketch comedy Gotham goofs. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're putting up a show at the pit, and they're <laughs> coming over to uh, you know hang out with the Joker for a bit. Oh, that was I, that was a good reference because I just did a show not at the pit, but the pit loft oh. uh, for my for my book. And so I was like, oh man, they got the main pit. Like that was my first thought. <laughs> Guys, it's I'm back in Hollywood and jealous of Gotham goons and their fictitious <laughs> and they sketch comedy show. Yes, damn. <laughs> I, yeah, no, that Goons comedy show, we're, we're writing that. We're putting up as a spank. It. No, no, we, we're doing this it's right now. Yeah, right no, now. turn the microphone off. We're writing we'll a spank. leave it on just uh, for, for, you know, uh, idea, idea jamming. Sure, yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll listen to it. Let's just jam. Let's just, let's just get loose. <laughs> Jesus. Yep, yep, yep. Oh. Uh, you have you have a notes. What are your other thoughts uh, on this one? Oh, I think we might have gotten to everyone. So he's he's seeing dummies everywhere. This hips McManus, uh, an awesome line for from Batgirl uh, when someone's like, "Oh, it's gonna be smooth sailing." She's like, "Yeah, up the river," <laughs> and she just clear like clears right through them with like a swinging kick. And I care very much about pithy knock em out one-liners making sense mm-hmm. and this one's airtight like he had his own reason to say it she yeah. had her twist on it it works great and yeah and I love I love uh, Barbara Gordon's like character arc and when she's done well it's so nice and it's so great to have her like be a no big deal just part of the crew like she's there to bounce things off of and it's not like that girl no like, not at all like, no, she, yeah. she, she is uh, capable and we're not calling attention to it absolutely that's um, kind of feminism <laughs> of course I mean but because she's a girl she gets a shorter cape like them's, them's the rules right, right like much like don't don't have it cover up your butt to like that. No, no, no. We gotta see your butt. We gotta see your butt. If you're a female superhero, we gotta see your butt. Right. God. Yeah. But that's. I think that's all I got. That's an excellent episode. I guess Robin had a short cape. We saw that Robin butt. That's yeah. We saw. And then the the new Damien Robin I love so much has an actual hood, uh, which they make the Robin Hood joke a few times, and it's adorable. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, I love that this episode is about gaslighting a sad man. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Yeah, which is a, like a very real and interesting thing. But yeah, I think that's what we would we would call it. Yeah, <laughs> with like, and this is also very much a literally gaslit like version of Gotham too. So that's, yes, that's interesting. Gotham by gaslight for yeah. real. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Let's read a bunch of books that are here. Right. <laughs> it's okay. just all makes me want right. Yeah, because I I love the. Batman animated series universe for like the uniformity and the simplicity, but I also love the messiness of this character has been around for 75 years with countless writers and like 
there's a weird kitty version, there's a super dark version, mm-hmm. and there's everything in between. Like, I love it all. I feel like this version works the best, and obviously I'm biased because I host a damn Batman podcast no. about it, but because it just takes every version and the best parts of it and right. crams it together. Yeah, whereas the Morrison version takes every parts of it and, like, stitches it together in this insane, like completely unwieldy but ambitious way. I love Morrison, but uh, once he like lets himself like there's there like there's always a moment where he's like and I'm gone in my own dream world and oh. you're following me. Uh, most like 60% of the time I'm with him and like I admire the ambition so much he can't do any wrong to me. Like, I feel like it's unreadable in an issue by issue sense. It's like just the tra- like if you try to remember what happened mm-hmm. and then remember that there's no way to remember it because there's not really a plot associated and he's pulling like old versions of Batman into yeah. just like a new version and you know has like some sort of dreamscape and oh, yeah. theme. Well there's a great like footnote in um the the nice version of Arkham Asylum like mm. his first Batman thing where he makes a note in the script that's like well this thing of uh, of Killer Croc attacking someone is very much like the primal id but also this reptile animal totem and I'm not sure the readers will pick up on all that but it'll come through <laughs> in some way and like him having that faith that that the readers will get it on some level like means everything to me. He can get away with some ridiculous bullshit because of that. Well, that's the coolest thing about him. I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, whether you're Grant Morrison writing for, you know, adults mm-hmm. or, you know, somebody, I, I feel like working in animation, like uh, writing for kids, like mm-hmm. not dumbing it down, not dumbing anything down for your, audi- your audience is so admirable to me. Yeah. Uh, like, I may not get every reference Grant Morrison is going for, but mm-hmm. you always feel like you're being intellectually challenged, or at least yeah. he's trying to do something. Right. I, I like that, like, a little above my head thing. Like, yeah. not too far, and not happy, like, not pretentious about it, but, like... No, it's yeah. just, like, truly, that's where his brain is at. The fact that he thinks the readers will sort of get that yeah. is is insane, because, you know, you really have to be doing a deep read of Arkham Asylum. Oh, yeah, and when, like, in... Like, when I first started getting into comics, like, his was the one, his comics were the ones that had, like, footnotes and people explaining things and layers of references in a single panel. And I only really got into monthly comics, like, when the New 52 came out. Like, I haven't been reading comics since I was, like, a teenager. That's when I dropped off. (laughs) Yeah, no, and and, and that makes sense to me. Like, um, but just getting into them now and knowing the full scope of, like, what they can do with, like, copyrights and that, like... Grant Morrison is in such a position that they reboot the entire universe and keep a lot of his ideas. Like, Grant Morrison's the only guy I have a single shelf for, um, where I'm just like, look at all these universes that this man has been in. So I'm already shaving my head, I'm going to get a cat, and then I'm just going to become him. That's yeah, it. Yeah, great. Yeah. Uh, you'll slowly morph into Morrison. <laughs> right, I would love to. Uh, well, We're here with Morph into Morrison. <laughs> uh, where we talk about the X-Men mutant Morph! <laughs> And Grant Morrison. <laughs> yeah, just, just the two. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Podcasts are so much more specific these days. You can oh, yeah. do that. Oh, yeah. Well, why don't we shift sure. uh, into Plugtown. Oh, Plugtown Plug USA. Yeah. Yes. So, you have a book. I do. That's come out. Mm-hmm. It is out. Uh, it's called All the Feelings, Hella Dramatic Monologues for Thespians of a Teenage... I'm holding it in my hand. It's beautiful. It's funny. Uh, tell us, the listeners, about... This book. Okay. Um, well, uh, my, my sort of theory or the inception of the idea of the book was uh, I work with Devastator Press, which has so many amazing books about so many different like 
pop culture things. There's a Scarface book. There's a, a great book called Killing It that just came out. That's a guide to being a woman in an action movie universe. They actually um, just came on the podcast a little while ago to talk about another Star- Scarface episode. Awesome. So, get get out of this episode. Go to two episodes back. Right, right. Stop yeah, the yeah, yeah, come back. Hey, it's me, Mike, again. <laughs> um, but they, you know, there's a Doctor Who and a Mega Man book. And to me, when I like I hang out with the group and I just get to know them. We're all drama dorks. Like every single person who's in any fandom spent some time in the theater department. And um, I checked and no one had done a parody monologue book before. No, it's so specific, but also feels like a hole in, in the parody world. Uh, well, thank you. And uh, I feel it was absolutely my solemn duty. This <laughs> looks like a Samuel French playbook, which is something I, as a high school drama student have a lot of familiarity with oh yeah and it looks it looks great on the shelf uh and the the cover design is absolutely beautiful uh shout out to jeffrey and amanda uh, for making it so beautiful yes but um yeah making fun of drama kids fish in a barrel like (laughs) and it's it's very much the the whole conceit of the book is that uh you don't have to know anything to feel everything so it's telling teenagers, you don't need to study acting, you don't need notes, you don't need a director, you need this book, this book only, and your feelings. <laughs> and all the monologues are organized by feeling. Yeah, I see regretful, Yeah. Uh, frustrated, angry. Uh, man, we have so many good ones. Yeah, there's uh, shaved, uh, drugged, shell-shocked. Uh, which I think is a word that came up in the episode. So there's our there we loose, go. There, loose there's, there's tie. tie. <laughs> now I'm justified in playing. There's one called I'm Your Daughter, Damn It. Yes. For daughters of any gender, 15 years of age. Absolutely. Uh, that feels truthful. Yes. This is great. Thank you. Where can people find it? Uh, people can find it on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, DevastatorPress.com. Um, I think I'm going to, to Meltdown. Hopefully it'll be there. Um, Meltdown Comics in Los Angeles. Yes. I, I faked a photo of uh, being everyone's staff recommendation for the week, uh, <laughs> and it just brings me all, like ultimate joy. That's but amazing. Yes. yes. Uh, and now you can go to Meltdown and say, how many books do you have by Mike Levine? And <laughs> Just two? Yeah, what's your reaction? One? It's, oh, oh, yeah. The flesh oh, the eat. flesh you will eat, um, which is a hardcover Dr. Seuss parody about flesh eating viruses it's and awesome. refusing medical treatment. Uh, also, there's a monologue contest. Yes, uh, there is. I'm running an international monologue contest, which I have justified in calling international because I have one person from England, uh, and it's on hellodramaticmonologues.tumblr.com. <laughs> And I, I gave out four monologues for you to just read into your webcam, and I'm picking winners, and you get a Bucket of Feelings prize pack, which is a real thing, uh, with a book and some needle points uh, with like acting advice from the book and a uh, mixtape of rap songs that make me cry. Um, I think I might put my real tears in there. Like, I think that would be... Just a little vile. Yeah, just like, yeah, like uh, an actual vile, because I'm, I'm just giving the most of myself. I'll do anything for this book. Um, because I, I love it so. That's awesome. Thanks yeah. for talking about it. Uh-huh. Uh, guys, buy it. Absorb it. Yeah. yeah give, it. give it to the theater nerd in your life uh, and make them feel ashamed for expressing themselves through <laughs> art. No, I'm a monster. Well, any other wrap-up thoughts about Batman this episode? I... More, more. I want more. Do you have all the I files? More. Give, give me the MP4s of all the rest of the series. <laughs> is what I really want to say. Oh like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. Those DVDs. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I'm still a file man. I don't do the streaming and things like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Thanks yeah. for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Awesome. Friendship solidified. Yeah. 
Dudes, that's the show. Follow us on Twitter at BTAS Podcast and me at Hey Justin. Subscribe in iTunes. Leave that review. Donate to the show and get cool rewards at patreon.com slash BTAS Podcast. For those of you that are going to guest on the show, have no fear, it's coming soon. Still fixing my good mic. And remember, if you'll be at Comic-Con on Saturday the 23rd, come to booth 3917 Starburns Industries. Say hi between 4.30 and 5.30, or just come and watch Tournament of Nerds at 6.30 somewhere off-site or on the interwebs. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Trela helped produce the theme song. Harry Chaskin is my childhood best buddy and the booming voice of this podcast. Thanks to my guests, Bob Goodman and Mike Levine. Special thanks, as always, to This American Life producer and co-creator Tori Malatia, who's kind of gotten into the habit of, like, prank-threatening me. I mean, just the other night, I received this message. All right, how about this? Pick up the phone or I pop a butt missile in your head. I don't know what a butt missile is, Tori, but you're funny and uh, also a little scary. All right, guys, see you in another two weeks or sooner if you're going to be at Comic-Con on Batman the Animated Podcast or in real life. Okay, guys, bye-bye.